Welcome to Head to Toe, stories from the history and future of healthcare. Greetings, podcast listeners. Welcome to Head to Toe, a healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Marie McMillan. I am a nurse, a writer, and a complete nerd for storytelling. Today's episode tells the story of Allison Escalante, a practicing pediatrician who has also cultivated a writing and speaking career. She covers many subjects from a pediatrician perspective, including but not limited to the complete insanity that accompanies raising healthy children by today's standards. You'll hear a little bit more introduction after the blip, so please enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Allison Escalante to Head to Toe. She is a pediatrician, a TEDx speaker, writer, and woman on a mission to ease the epidemic of anxiety that has convinced us we are all failing and is stealing our joy. She has developed a three-step method to help parents raise their kids skillfully and enjoy doing it. She writes for Psychology Today, and I'm really excited to talk with her about her career. Thanks, Allison, for being on the show. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. I want this conversation to be kind of about you and the genesis of your career. So tell me a little bit about where you're from, where you went to school, med school, and how you decided to become a pediatrician. You know, I originally am from New Jersey. I know everyone loves to pick on it, but one of the things that's awesome about growing up in New Jersey is that we are skeptical. So if you tell us something and make a claim, we're going to ask you to back that up. And I actually think that's kind of great training for really life. To kind of always say, well, why are you saying that? Are you sure? And and how could you prove that to me? And so anyway, I took that and I was kind of this super nerdy kid who was interested in everything. And I ended up starting out college thinking I was going to major in biology. So at Princeton, they had this major uh, molecular biology and a lot of the pre-meds did it. But at the time, I was thinking I was going to be a scientist And then my freshman year, while I was doing that, I ended up taking a class on opera because they had a writing requirement. And um, my writing class was on Mozart's operas with De Ponte, looking at how the words interconnected with the music. And I just fell in love. And I remember turning in this paper that my professor had said, you know, 12 pages, and I turned in 17. And he called me to his office and he said, you know, normally when a freshman turns in a page that's five pages longer than I asked for, it's redundant, but yours is not. And that's when I kind of realized that, well, he said something kind of about my writing. And I thought, that's interesting. Maybe I I really like writing. So the next step was uh, suddenly realizing uh, I didn't want to be a scientist and switching my major to medieval Renaissance history. That's quite a jump. It makes more sense if you know that I also, as a, a high schooler, went to nerd school in the summer about, our, or nerd camp, I should say, about the medieval Renaissance. But yeah, so that's what I did. And I studied the history of ideas, which is kind of how you look at culture and ideas and you look at how ideas change and then how how that kind of moves through history and, and changes everything once there's a new idea that starts running around. Cool. Wait, was it actually called nerd camp? I'm curious. No, it was called oh, okay. the Scholars Program. Yeah. Okay. okay. I was like, <laughs> is this an actual thing called Nerd Camp? Because that's awesome. I want to go to Nerd Camp. All right. Cool. Cool. Got it. Yeah. So, so, so now you're switching majors. You're kind of into the medieval history thing. You're realizing that you're a writer. And then how did that, how did that get you to med school? Right. So I also thought I might like teaching. And so I was planning at that point on getting a PhD and becoming a history professor. 
but I, I found myself growing restless. And as a skeptical kid from New Jersey, I covered my bases and I had kept taking all my pre-med requirements just as a backup. And as I was writing these wonderful papers mm -hmm. about 500 years ago and how they were solving the problems of their day, I felt increasingly frustrated because I was thinking about how I would have tried to solve those problems. And over time, it became clear to me that it was not going to work for me to be become an academic in that field and focus the rest of my life on what people did when I needed to figure out what I could do now and I was going to need to interact with the problems of today. So I flipped and went to med school. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And then somehow got into pediatrics. Yeah. Well, history is fabulous training for medical school because history is all about looking at how something develops over time and what factors pull in mm -hmm. and what hidden factors are going on. So actually, I was naturally good at taking a, a, a patient history right from the beginning because I'd had all that training. And I was also really good at backing up because one of the things a lot of kids go through when they go to med school is they've been doing science, but a lot of uh, science training is about doing the experiment, whereas history is about asking yourself constantly why you think you know that. A lot of becoming a decent doctor is exactly that. Well, what's your evidence for that? Why do you think it's scarlet fever? You know, so so that was useful. I got the best career advice ever because I continued to go through med school totally confused and interested in everything. I thought surgery was great. I thought internal medicine was great. I thought everything was interesting. And one day I was in an, uh, in the OR with a surgeon who had a reputation in the vascular surgery department for being the best surgeon in the department and also seemed to everyone to be unhappy with his career. So that was interesting. And I got to be his first assistant. So I'm there helping him do this complicated surgery. And he looks up at me and he says, I can see how excited you are right now. You know, this is really, really neat for you. But here's the thing about medicine. Anything you choose is going to become routine eventually. And so you have to look for the thing where you get something more. And I thought that was really the best piece of career advice I ever had. So I pondered that for a couple years and then ended up going into pediatrics because that was the place where it wasn't just medically interesting. There was also this this something more to it for me. And that was how much I just love developing kids and and love sort of the way that all interacts with the family. Yeah, that's I love those two points about how history really prepared you for a patient assessment in history and how to how to speak with other people, because you're right, that's that is half of medicine is interacting with your patients and not just looking at it from a case study standpoint and, and the science, like you said. And if you think about it, I guess historically, a lot of the big, you know, scientists were physicians as well. Like I'm, I'm thinking like Ptolemy or Stottle, like they were all sort of interested in medicine as well. So it's interesting you bring that up. I thought that was cool. And then uh, every Everything in medicine will become routine and you have to find something more. What a great point. What a great point. Thanks so much for that. So you kind of already answered this, but what was the thing that prompted you to move away from purely pediatrics and start blogging and writing? Or is that just something you've always done alongside your career? No, you know, when my kids were young, I did not have like a spare moment to do something like that. That would have been impossible. But I did find that I missed writing very much because I used to write like short stories and poetry and stuff like that. So I did journal when I could. But one of the things that kept coming up early in pediatric practice 
was just being stunned by how anxious the parents were. And coming out of training where you've just been taking care of the most intense cases, you know, I got to train at Duke and University of Chicago where we saw the toughest of the tough stuff. And I went from that to people being like really, really worried about a cold and just being mystified. And so I started really thinking, and I, I do think that my background in looking at how hidden ideas can drive us, you know, came into play for me there. But yeah, I spent 10 years studying the problem, trying to find something to give parents to help them. And I never expected to come up with it myself. I expected to find a book written by someone else. And then one day I found that I had come up with it myself. Yeah. And that's a great segue into your briefly what should storms are, which is hilarious and amazing and how you developed the sigh, see and start method. And you can see all of this in Allison's fabulous TEDx talk. So I won't over explain it. But what my curiosity lies in is what, you know, if there were any anecdotes that led you to the sigh, see, start method, or if there was something from your practice that sort of added to that or became part of the genesis of that? Or I'm just curious how, how you came exactly to the C start. Did, is it just a pattern you saw over and over again? Or was it maybe one thing? You know, it was an intuitive pop. It was like all that stuff that had been floating around in my head and all the, you know, neuroscience I'd looked at and stuff. And I actually tell the story in my TEDx. If you remember the story I shared of the woman who was completely overwhelmed by breastfeeding and she was sharing with me, you know, I feel like I should breastfeed. I feel like maybe I should try a nipple shield. Maybe I should go back to the lactation consultant. Maybe I should pump harder. Maybe, I mean, should I try formula? And just watching her totally miserable while she's holding the cutest little baby who's fine and her husband, the new dad, looking like so protective, like he's just desperately wants to help her and can't figure out what to do. And in that moment, I leaned forward and I held her hand, you know, and this fr this was um, a friend of mine. But still, I I looked at her and I said, you know, you are what your baby needs. It's not your breast milk. And that was when this method kind of popped out of me. And I taught her about size, see and start. And she went from being all hunched over her baby with her shoulders just crushed up by her ears. And I watched them float down as she thought about how she could do that. And then she came back a month later when I next saw her, when we ran into each other, she told me that, you know, she'd been using it. And she said, before I had only anxiety and now I have confidence and I was floored. And I thought, oh my gosh, I think I have something here. But I didn't sit down and like deliberately create this. It was the, the need of watching another mother go through this, something that I went through with breastfeeding, and it just kind of came out of me. Do you have other examples where you've seen this work for maybe your social media followers or friends or your, your own self, perhaps? Well, sure. Basically, I have one that I love, and you'll love this too, I think, because she's another medical mom. But this mom is a PA in the emergency room, so she's got a very busy, stressful job. And she has two kids under the age of two. One of them's about three months old. And it was incredible because she told me that she had watched my TEDx talk and said, you know, it was just what I needed to hear at that time. I've been using your method 
And right now we're moving and changing jobs and there's the baby and the two-year-old and everything is a big blur, but I'm still able to use it. And I feel like my two-year-old's daughter is getting so much better, her behavior. And I was just amazed. I asked her for specific examples and she said, I don't know, everything's such a blur, but I know I'm using it and, and things are getting better. I mean, at a time like that, for it to be working, I found that very compelling. Yeah, and totally rewarding too to say that you know you're not just helping your own patients in clinic, but now you're reaching a whole a whole wider audience because of your TEDx talk and all the writing and blogging that you do. So kudos, awesome! That's congratulations. That's really great. Well, thank you. Yeah, you know, I never had a use in writing unless it was useful to people. So I think finding out that it's helping means a lot. And as a parent to be, I am going to delve into this further. If you guys want to uh, check out the Psi C Start method, look for the show notes and the link to Allison's TEDx talk. So going to switch gears here a little bit. So I work in the adult world of medicine in adult critical care, and I give and hear my colleagues give advice all the time. We tell people to exercise, take their meds, don't smoke, don't drink, do drugs, and all those things. And sometimes in reality, we practice a little differently. So I'm wondering, how do you separate personal advice from professional advice as a pediatrician? Well, I think it depends on what context you mean. If you're talking about in the office, I will usually make it very clear whether the what I'm about to say is science-based, whether it's, I don't have any research on it, but it's my clinical experience, or whether I'm about to tell a story about my kid and it only applies if they think it's useful. <laughs> That's a good way of categorizing things. <laughs> yeah, right? I think one of the biggest problems with parenting advice is so often people generalize from specific children. And that's not fair because, you know, everyone's so different. So you can give like a little story and it might or might not be useful to the person you're giving it to. And as long as you, you know, replace it with like, hey, this is something I tried, then that's different. But I also happen to practice in the same community where I live. So I have a lot of friendships. And I thought maybe that was more what you were referring to. And there, we just always keep the medical advice for the office. And I just keep those lines very clear. And it works really great because if I'm at a party or if I'm at, you know, a something at the school, I don't have to be harassed by constant medical questions because I can just, you know, sometimes people ask one time, but I'll just remind them that the rules, you know, how the rules work and how this is professional ethics and, you know, they need to send it through the secure patient portal or call the office. And it works out great because I think that while initially people might be like, oh, I wish I could just call my pediatrician who lives down the street. But it protects all of us because then we can be at the pool and they don't have to worry that I'm evaluating their kid's health, right? We're just hanging out at the pool, you know, and we keep those lines really clear. So is that what you were talking about? Yeah, I guess kind of both. You know, I just suppose thinking about being a parent, which occupies a lot of my brainwaves right now, you know, a lot of people are parents, a lot of people, you know, just talking to my other friends who are becoming new parents and having babies or having, you know, young children. It's just people do have babies. So people don't, but that's fine too. I'm just saying that it seems to be a common human practice to procreate and have children as opposed to, so I'm just saying that I think you run into it more with your friends and family and that people have kids and you happen to be a medical expert in the area of people having kids and raising them as opposed to like my area work, whereas not everybody you walk into 
you on the street has someone who is critically ill or living in a nursing home or lives with some sort of chronic illness that keeps them in and out of the hospital all the time and they have a trajectory of maybe a couple years left, that kind of thing. I guess that's just where my curiosity came from. But yeah, you answered that beautifully. I, I loved both angles of that. So thank you very much. I kind of want to switch gears into storytelling a little bit. When we emailed, you told me a little bit about a story of a 17-year-old patient that you encountered, I think, either in med school or residency that sort of changed your own journey. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, I, I'll try to tell it without crying, but, you know, maybe if I cry a little, it'll be good for the podcast. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> we're all human, you know, <laughs> right? Because I think that that's another element. People have asked me, well, why did you get so interested in in psychology and in the behavioral side of everything? Most pediatricians are more focused on the medical. And I think that there were a lot of things that went into it. But this patient was huge for me. So she was a patient that I took care of while I was a pediatric resident at Duke. And I knew her for quite some time because she was in and out of the hospital frequently for long periods. There were times where I was assigned to the team taking care of her. At that time, you know, we took call every fourth night. We worked about a 32-hour shift. So I was basically having contact with her around the clock. And her disease was lupus and a very uh, severe form of lupus, which can be sometimes the worst in teenagers. And so for, for non-medical listeners, lupus is a systemic, full body, every organ system, inflammatory disease. And it's one of the autoimmune diseases. So your own body kind of attacks you. And lupus is in my top five most hated diseases because it just can kind of, well, it goes after everything. And it's pretty awful in teenagers. But I don't want to be negative because I have lots of friends who have lupus and are my age and thriving and having kids. So I'm really referring to a particularly bad version of it, not to make people worried if they know someone with lupus because it's a it's a spectrum. Anyway, this young woman eventually died and I watched her deteriorate and die. I wasn't at her at her passing. But I don't believe that it was the lupus that killed her. I believe it was her mental health struggles that killed her because that was what got in the way of her ability to take her medicines on a regular basis and to do what she needed to do to take care of herself. I kind of had uh, been reading about some stuff and you know, I was watching her behavior and she seemed to me to have borderline personality disorder where she would have a number of behaviors that were very classic for people with borderline personality, including splitting where I was either the best, most wonderful doctor in the world or the worst, most evil trying to hurt her doctor in the world. She would fake cardiac events. And because the nurses were often changing, they didn't realize that she was doing this. So we did maybe about a billion EKGs on her. And, and she would always do it right around 2 or 2.30 uh, in the morning, very often when I just had a moment to lie down. Sometimes I feel like I, uh, sometimes she actually kind of watched me on the floors and she could, I remember one time she saw me say to someone that I was going to go to bed now. 
And then about a half hour later, she had one of these false cardiac events. And it was hard because it was uh, obviously uh, a challenging relationship and it was hard to enjoy her personality. I also felt tremendous compassion for her and her obvious unhappiness. So I reached out to the psychiatric team and asked them to come see her. But the way it works in the hospital is the psych team is kind of more of like an acute team. So they come and they assess and they move on. And they diagnosed her with, I think, adjustment disorder with depressed mood, which basically means you're feeling kind of crappy because you're in the hospital. And I think they started a low dose um, antidepressant. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I mean, they were right. You can't diagnose someone with a personality disorder in, you know, one or two consults, but they just kind of didn't engage with my concern. And it was those behaviors over time that I think were directly connected to her lack of compliance with her medicines and her eventual death because the lupus got so badly out of control. So I realize that's not about parenting, but it just really hit home that it was the deeper issue. It was the mental health and well-being that that seemed to be at the core of her suffering And that got me really interested in those kinds of issues. You said it changed the trajectory of my career. How did did you change gears? Yeah, it did. Again, in residency, I was interested in everything and I was a good student. And, you know, um, I went to the kind of institutions that really train people to be researchers and specialists. And that had sort of been my thought that maybe I'd become an academic and, you know, write important papers and stuff. But after that, I started doing more research just privately on personality disorders. And then I ended up writing my senior uh, project at Duke on the impact of when a mother has borderline personality disorder on, on the child. And I got really interested in trauma and trauma therapy and PTSD and family dynamics, very interested in family dynamics. And over time, I realized that the thing I was most passionate about, which is not waiting till the problem is huge, but dealing with it right at the beginning, maybe helping families set up to get off on the right foot from the beginning that that was sort of what I realized I was most interested in. And that's how I ended up in straightforward pediatric practice, working with developing kids and developing families. Well, thank you for sharing that story. I know everybody has, many doctors out there have anecdotes and stories about patients that they have, quote unquote, hated for a little while, you know, (laughs) and not because of the people, but because of their disease and everything that goes along with it and getting paged at 2.30 in the morning. And a lot of listeners out there, I think, can empathize with that situation and then how it affects them in the future and how they practice for sure. That's that's a lot of what goes into residency, right? Yeah, I have two other thoughts on her. One was, it's true, she was hard to love. I mean, she used to grin at me when uh, I'd come to assess her and, you know, she'd be acting like she was having this problem with her heart. And then she'd look at me. And as soon as everyone was out of the room, she'd look right in my eyes and she'd grin, you know, and it just like I knew what she was doing. But yeah, but at the same time, I think the thing that left with me that, that stuck with me the most was the feeling of helplessness. The feeling of her conflict and my conflict and how, try as I might, I couldn't help her because she wasn't getting what she needed, which was really skilled psychological support, you know. And so I guess if I were to pick one thing out of all of this that most impacted my Mm -hmm. career, it's Mm -hmm. 
looking for ways to get people the deeper support that they need when they need it. Well said. Well said, indeed. You have amazing advice for new parents that you've said from other podcasts and other speaker engagements. Like, I love the thing you had to say about baby doesn't need all that stuff. They need you talking about your friend who was breastfeeding before. What is your advice for new pediatricians out there who are perhaps running around like chickens with their heads cut off going, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help my people. I don't know how to help myself. What's your advice for them for new practitioners in the pediatric field? I think I talk about the should storm and the sense that there's a million things we should be doing. And I think that doctors are in a bit of a should storm ourselves right now with increasing pressures for productivity, but as well as new requirements from insurers, you know, and the EMR can, the electronic medical record can be a lot. And then a lot of young pediatricians are at an age where they've postponed starting a family and they're maybe considering starting a family soon. A couple things. You said it right there. You know, what your patients need is you. It's you. And it took me years to understand that. I thought that what I brought to the table was my medical training and my knowledge. And I didn't believe that I had that much to offer on a personal level. So I kind of just stayed in a bit of a, I don't know, more academic doctory role. And over time, through meaningful patient connections, I realized that you know, my medical expertise, that's a given. You've got to bring that to your patients. You've got to practice good medicine. But it was the heart to heart. It was the authentic connection. That was what I really brought to the table. And I would say to the new pediatricians that you are enough. I know it's ridiculous, but I actually think the SIC and START method can help there too. I've used it at work like pretty much every day, <laughs> you know, <laughs> especially when I feel intimidated. And that still happens um, at this stage in my career where I'm hearing a story and I'm like, something's tickling my mind and I'm worried that there's something more here. And I start to have a moment of intimidation. And so what I do is I sigh and I see the patient and I see their story and their you know, physical findings. And then I start generating my workup. And I found that very helpful for centering and handling stress in the thick of it. Awesome. Good stuff, guys. You got to go check it out. I think I'm just going to end with why are you still passionate about the work that you do now? Yeah, so this has been really interesting. I think that I did go through some years of frustration as a frustrated writer who had no time to write. And, you know, doctoring is is so wonderful and so fulfilling. But I think you've heard the burnout rate is about 50% among doctors now. And, you know, I, I may have gone through a time of feeling pretty worn down by it. But my kids are at an age where they're more independent. They like to do things on their own. And it's while they're off playing, I play. And for me, my writing is play, you know, playing around and trying to figure out how to communicate well and how to make a difference is a lot of fun. And so I haven't found it to be a burden. And then it, what's really interesting is it's really reinvigorated my direct patient practice because I'm happier. I'm more satisfied. I'm playing on a regular basis. Then I go into those interactions and I can just really be present and enjoy that time. So yeah, that's what I would say. But I, I think that it would be a really bad idea to try to be doing all this writing I've been doing on top of a medical career if it wasn't fun for me. 
find the passion in what you do and your side gigs for sure. And to do what makes you happy, that will keep you in a career longer. The more people I talk to, the more people I interview, the more people tell me, you know, to have a 30, 40 plus year in career in medicine or nursing or respiratory therapy or, or whatnot. It's to keep things interesting and, and make sure you like most of it and take care of yourself in the meantime. Yeah. That's good advice. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to share with the listeners, Miss Escalante? I, I think that the most important thing is the interesting sense of hypocrisy I have as calling myself lately a parenting expert, because I think the more you study, the more you realize you don't know. And so um, my biggest take home would be that I make mistakes with my kids every single day. But uh, I think there's we have tons of uh, research and I, I see it in my own home that if we can step out of the anxiety, step out of the should storm long enough to make that authentic connection with our kids, it works out. I also think that treating mistakes as learning makes all the difference. For sure. Well said. Thank you so much, Alison Escalante. She is on Facebook and LinkedIn and Pinterest and TEDx. Good look at her awesome talk. It's on YouTube and TEDx.com. And you can find all of her contact and content info on her website, AllisonEscalante.com. Check out the show notes for more. Thanks again, Allison, for being a guest on Head to Toe. Thank you. And there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Head to Toe. I'm Marie McMillan. And before I go, I do have a quick announcement. It's your birthday. Yes, it is your birthday. It's your birthday. Yes, it is your birthday. It's your birthday. Yes, it is your birthday. We are Happy third birthday, Head to Toe. It's been three very cool years of podcasting and capturing the stories of healthcare providers and consumers like yourselves, listeners. So here's the catch, and I only do this once a year. In honor of the podcast's third birthday, I am asking for $3 donations to keep this podcast rolling. In case you weren't aware, I'm pretty much a one-woman operation. Continuing head-to-toe production requires a few things other than my unbridled passion for storytelling and carving out free time, aside from my full-time hospital job. My annual costs include professional website subscriptions to Podbean and Squarespace. Those are about 100 bucks each. Audio equipment maintenance is about 50 bucks a year. Computer applications to keep my fancy laptop in tip-top shape. And I've actually started outsourcing the major audio editing to a professional who is way better at it than I am. So please consider a $3 donation or other amount of your choosing. All of your tiny donations really help keep this thing alive. So if you enjoy the podcast or like what I write about, follow me on social media at all, or or generally like what I do, please consider a $3 donation or other means of support by clicking the link in the show notes or visiting my website, mariemcmillan.com. I am also looking for more professional sponsors. So if you have a health-related business or platform you'd like to get out there, email me. And then we can maybe get a quick promo set up like this one. Thank you to our podcast sponsor, Lux Pillow. Are you getting good quality sleep? No, you are not alone. One in three Americans suffer from poor sleep, according to the CDC. So go check out Lux Pillow's products, and their goal is to help you fall asleep fast, feel better, and achieve more. I can personally attest to their awesomeness. I have two of their pillows, so quit tossing and turning and get your best sleep ever with a Lux Pillow at LuxPillow.com. Be sure to use the special coupon code for Head to Toe listeners, Head to Toe, all one word, H-E-A-D-T-O-T-O-E, and it'll get you 10% off your purchase. Thank you to Tara Voschel of Spooked Girl Productions for professional audio editing. Thank you to Wesley Price for the intro-outro music of today's show. And thank you again to Alison Escalante for being today's awesome guest. 
As always, please like, share, subscribe, and all the things to get the word out there. That's a totally free way to support the show. In case you don't have three bucks to send my way, spreading the word about the podcast is always a great way to show your support. You can also email me your show suggestions at macmillanpages.com or drop me a quick voicemail on the podcast feedback line. That's 503-512-0185. Let me know what you think. Okay, that's all for now. I'm six months pregnant, so I'm going to sigh. See all the things I have to get done in the next three months and start mentally processing it all by taking a nap, followed by a Dairy Queen run. Okay, until next time, take care, guys.